so far is that uh, the Israelites had been enslaved by the Egyptians, um, and God revealed himself to the Israelites through Moses. Uh, God destroyed the Egyptian army and brought the Israelites uh, out of slavery in Egypt, uh, took them through the middle of the Red Sea, parted it, um, and in the last couple of chapters, we've been seeing the Israelites wander through the desert, uh, make it to Mount Sinai, uh, where they have started to receive the law from God. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and that was a really special way that God revealed himself. Uh, he revealed his laws directly to all of the Israelites. It was not uh, mediated by Moses. And when this happened, the Israelites were super freaked out. They did not want to be hearing from God directly. They wanted to hear from Moses. So they said, talk to Moses for us. We can't, we can't handle this. We're too scared. Uh, and so after that, Moses went up to the mountain, and he's been uh, receiving uh, many laws from God and We'd say that the Book of the Covenant started right after that, and this passage today is the end of the Book of the Covenant. Um, and the next, the, what we're going to look at next week, uh, the covenant between God and his people is going to be ratified. So it's really going to be set into motion. Uh, and so as, as we're reading through this, as we see this text, like think about why would God close with, with this text, um, the Book of the Covenant? We could have said whatever he said. Why did he, why did he say this? So... While this passage has a lot to say about what the Israelites are supposed to be doing, a lot of laws, I think the key to this passage is ultimately uh, about what God does. And I think that this uh, is about how God provides for his people, and specifically in three ways. Uh, So God provides spiritually for his people, uh, God provides physically for his people, and God provides faithfulness for his people. So looking at our first point here, God provides spiritually for his people, This passage begins by pointing out God's spiritual provision. It's really explicit. There's an angel that they're following. Uh, It doesn't get more spiritual than that. God says he's going to send this angel in front of them um, that's going to bring them into the promised land, that's going to protect them. And uh, this angel is none other than the pillar of fire and smoke that they have been following since they went through the Red Sea. So I think in the next slide, just to get a little visual of this, uh, this is an artist's depiction. we're in the process of getting a new projector, so if I did this next week, maybe it would be better, but there's a whole bunch of people following this nice pillar there. Um, so they knew where to go, right? The angel was leading them, and I mean, that's a lot of people, okay? There, there, were, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people following this pillar, and God was telling them where to go uh, through this angel. And so this revelation was, was really explicit for them in order for them to be able to follow it, um, and in order for them to... Uh, get where they needed to go. So this presence of the angel gives the Israelites the opportunity to grow in their spiritual life, in their everyday life. Uh, It's a big chance for them to wrestle with God like their ancestor Jacob did. So if you're not familiar with that story, um, when Jacob was coming back into the land of Canaan after after being away, he wrestled this angel all night. And uh, at the end of it, he many would say that he kind of won, but the angel had, had the last laugh. Um, and crippled him for life, essentially, in the leg. And so every day when Jacob would go and uh, walk around, he would have to, he would have to struggle with, oh, the, you know, this limp that I have. God gave that to me. Am I going to choose to follow God today, or am I not? And so this is the same opportunity that the Israelites had with this, with this pillar. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd see this pillar of smoke. At night, it was a pillar of fire, um, gave them, gave them uh, light by the night. And so at every opportunity while they were in the wilderness, they had the opportunity to say, am I going to follow God today or am I not? They, decide, they could do this individually, and they could also decide this as a, as a corporate body. And so 
this is in contrast to kind of how the Israelites had to choose to trust God when they came out of Egypt. Um, when they came out of Egypt, uh, I, I like to think of this as like strength training. So when God was telling the Israelites as he started to reveal himself to them, hey, I'm God, I'm going to take down this mo- the most powerful country in the world. Um, and at this point in time, uh, when Moses goes and tells them this, they haven't seen God do anything. Then God gives Moses uh, a couple of things to prove his point. He can turn his staff into a snake, and he can put his hand in his cloak, and it comes out, and it's, it's white as snow, it's, it's diseased. He puts it back in, and it's regular. And, you know, th- those are miracles, and the Israelites believe in God after this. But at the end of the day, like, I think that you'd still have some doubts about what God can do. Because, again, the, the, the Egyptians and the Egyptian army was the most powerful in the world. And so a couple of parlor tricks, what's that? Um, and compared to this massive force. And so in the course of uh, the plagues that God sends, Israelites every day or every time that this happens get to see, oh, God's actually, you know, more powerful than what we originally thought. And eventually he, he delivers them from the Egyptians, which is one of the things that he promised. And so I think of trusting God at this stage for the Israelites, this, this initial trust is kind of like going and trying to lift a big boulder. So when you guys are all helping the Lavalos move later today, and you're moving their bed, you're moving their TV, um, and a lot of you maybe are not going to the gym regularly, and it's real heavy, you can think, oh, this is what it's like to maybe first trust God. This is what the Israelites were dealing with. Whereas now the Israelites are out in the wilderness. It seems like it's, it's going to be harder because they're, I mean, it's the wilderness. It's a desert. It seems like it's a place you don't want to be. But every day, they kind of get to do, do a little bit of exercise. They get to choose. I'm going to follow God today. Um, I'm going I'm to literally follow him wherever he goes, and that gives me the opportunity to grow. That gives the Israelites the opportunity to grow. So it's like going to the gym every day, pumping a little bit of weight. Um, you get stronger over time, and if you mess up, if you drop those weights, it's not 400 pounds. You know, maybe, maybe it's 50 pounds, and you, you can recover from that. And so this is a, this is a lower risk opportunity for the Israelites to be following God um, as he provides for them spiritually every day. So I think that God also provides uh, for the Israelites spiritually um, as he goes into the land and he prepares it for them ahead of time. Verses 27 and 28 make this clear. Um, as his terror, it says his terror, which, which is the angel, um, is a spiritual phenomenon. It goes ahead. Um, the Israelites um, should be trusting that God's going to do this too. If we look back at Exodus, 20, or Exodus 14, which we preached a couple months ago, uh, when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, uh, the Israelites went first. They went across. Moses had parted it. They went through. And then, and then this pillar that was fo- they were following, this pillar of fire, actually went behind them as they were going through because the Egyptian army went into the water too. They're like, we're going to get these guys. So they, fo- they followed them in, and the pillar of fire threw the, the Egyptian army into a disarray. And so they're running all in different directions while there's, there's two walls of water on the side of them. And once the Israelites are out of the uh, seabed and all the Egyptians are in it, uh, the waters come back down and God defeats the whole uh, Egyptian army in one, in one fell swoop. And so they have, they have reason to trust. They're not, they're not basing this on nothing. They've now seen God do this. And so if he's done it to the most powerful force in the world, going into the land of Canaan and dealing with a bunch of disparate people groups, they should be able to trust that God is doing this. So God's providing for his, spirit, or his people spiritually in this way. Um, so our next point I want to really bring up is that God provides physically for his people. Um, and so I think that this is something that 
is really meant to catch our attention. And even if it doesn't catch our attention, it really would have caught the, the attention of the Israelites. So this really points back to the promise that God had made to Abraham uh, 400 years previous to this passage. Um, and the promise to Abraham was that he was going to uh, have a lot of kids. He was going to... His, his, uh, his ancestors would uh, be numerous like the stars and that they would inherit the land of Canaan. So they would have a place to live. So, in verse, so I think that in the next slide, it just uh, demonstrates the, all of the physical provisions. Uh, verse 25, I will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. And then, so that, that's pointing to life. And then verse 31, um, I'll give you the land and I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So God's physical provision for the Israelites is about life and it's about land. Uh, Verses 25 and 26 is a comprehensive list of pretty much anything you could ask for in life physically. Uh, you get enough food, you're never hungry, you're always healthy, never sick, you get to have a lot of babies, which is maybe a little bit less important for us in our culture, but very important back then, and, you know, with all the pregnancies we get in this church, it's really important for us, I know, and uh, you, get to li- you get to live a long time, too. So, I mean, there, what more, really, can you ask for um, in this? And even in all of that, it gets even better because it's not just you get those things and you're living somewhere that you don't really know, you don't really care about, you've got overlords on top of you, but you actually get to do it in a land that's filled with your brothers and sisters and cousins, your people, um, and you feel safe there because they're protecting it, and even more so, uh, God is the one that's protecting it. And so God's offering this to you on a silver platter. This is your dream. So for all of you, you can think about, like, what is it that you most want in your heart of hearts? Like, that is what God is offering to all people, and he's offering it in this passage specifically to the Israelites. Uh, and and I, I really can't stress, stress this enough. Like, these things that God's listing, I think, really are what anybody would want. I know that this is, this is what I want in my life, um, and I think it's hard for us to think about owning the land, um, but it's easy for us to think about having a place to call home, a place that's ours, a place that we have ownership. Um, for the Israelites, this wasn't true. Deuteronomy 25, 6 calls their ancestor Abraham uh, the wandering Aramean. So Abraham had been wandering for most of his life when God called him out of uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, and since then, his descendants never had a place to really call home. They were, they were a wandering people, they wandered around the land of Canaan and around the desert for a long time, and then they ended up in Egypt, where things were great for a while, but then they were enslaved. And so, you know, they are the Israelites, uh, not the Egyptians, and so this wasn't home for them. And so, for us to think about what it might be like to be in the Israelites' shoes, I think the best example that we can think of in, in our modern day is thinking about uh, the refugees that we see on the news all the time from uh, the wars and conflicts that we're seeing in the Middle East. So all of the, all of the refugees, at least, you know, almost all of the refugees, 
are, are on, on their way out. They, they can't live. All they want to do is live their life in silence. They want to live quietly. They want to be with their families. They, wanna, they just want to enjoy life. That's really what, what we all want to do. But they can't because of the conflict. And so, so they run. They go and they try to find some place where they'll be able to call home, where they'll be able to be productive members of society uh, and love their families. But in the process of this, uh, it's not easy for refugees to be housed. So they end up in these temporary holding facilities um, on the outskirts of many countries. They're given a daily ration of food. They have administrators over them. It's not really a place to call home. It's, it's not really a place that they can go to sleep at night and say, I own this. I love being here. I really want to invest in this community. It's, 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 it's significant displacement. Um, and so I think that this really should be pulling on our heartstrings um, and I encourage you guys, as, as you listen to the news and you hear about this, to think about uh, what it was like uh, for our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, um, and we should see them in these refugees, um, and it should, it should move us to motion. Uh, and so, thinking in this mindset, right, so you're a refugee, you're running away, God is saying that this nightmare that your people have been in for 400 years is about to come to an end. Uh, he's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you into the land um, of milk and honey where you're going to work your fields, but you're going to get way more out of what you put into it um, because God is gracious. Um, and a gigantic portion of the land is, is going to belong to you. You're going to be able to feel safe uh, for the first time in, in forever. And all you have to do is, is follow a couple of these laws that, that I'm, I'm putting out there because I'm God. But, you know, and this, 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 is the, this is the hard part of faith, okay? So I don't want to make this sound easy. Um, but unlo- for, for, the, for the Israelites, unlocking the object of their desire required obedience. Uh, the text says that they're going to have to go to war. And if you really look at what the text is saying, it essentially says God's going to go first, and they're just going to go mop up after the battle. They don't even really have to be, be in front. They're just, they're just doing the rear guard action. Uh, they have to keep themselves distinct from the Canaanites, um, that the people that they're driving out, and they have to smash any semblance of Canaanite religion that they find. Uh, so they got to listen to these commandments and follow them. I mean, if, if we look at them and we think about them, like, do they really seem so hard? So, I mean, and think about it in this context, right? So the Israelites are going to go and ratify the covenant. Like, this is, this is the end, right? So this is what they hear. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, this is what we're going to, this is, this is what God wants from us. This is what we're going to do. And if we do this, this is what we get. And so you hear this, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try. I think we can do this. Like, we, we can try to do this. So, and it, yeah, there, there are incredible incentives to following this. So I want us to think about, like, let's say, let's say it's kind of a hybrid of, you know, me today or me as, as an Israelite. But let's just look at the Ten Commandments and think about, you know, can I follow these if I know that I'm going to get, the, you know, I'm going to get great things by following them? So, first commandment, I, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers the, the motions that Eric did. I don't. So, uh, if you do, good for you. Um, so, the, number one, uh, you shall have no other gods before for me. Um, for me, you know, I'm an Israelite. This is cool. I'm being told explicitly, this is how I go to worship. You know, go to the tabernacle, go to the temple, uh, sacrifice animals before God. I can do that. How much of my time is that really going to take? Um, I mean, and, and even more so, I think I can probably believe in this God that I'm literally following through the wilderness, that I can see. I wake up in the morning, he's there. I don't, I don't have any doubts. Okay, well, maybe God's not here. He's right there. I can see him. He's right there. I can do that, okay? So point one, I got. 
Number two, you shall not make idols. So again, to me, no problem. God's told me how to worship him. I don't need to make something out of, out of wood. And I can see God right there. I can, be, I can do this. Number three, you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Again, I think that this one is pretty easy. Don't go around swearing. Don't go by making oath saying, God did this. Just go and live your life. Keep your mouth shut. Okay, what do I get if I keep my mouth shut? I get to, I get to be old. I can do that. Number four, keep the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So th- this one doesn't even belong on the list, okay? Like, if you're, if you're an Israelite and you see this, like, this, do- this doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even belong on the list. Like, if it said, you need to work every day of the week um, and keep all the days of the week holy, that one might be hard to do. But essentially what God's saying is, I got to work six out of seven days a week. If I take this seventh day off, what I get in return is lots of babies, long life, life in the land. What, there, there, there's, there's no disincentives to doing this. Um, especially because I'm not a farmer at this point in time. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I wander around with my, with my sheep. I can take a day off. That's, that is really, really easy for me. I don't, I don't need to go out in the fields and harvest. The, my animals are right there. They'll be fine. Okay, point five. Honor your father and mother. I think that this one uh, is probably, would probably be the hardest one for me. I think that if you think in ancient, the way ancient cultures worked, uh, you know, paying attention and honoring your mother and father was a lot easier than it is for, for us today. Um, but even like, so I'm an adult now, and I can do this because there, there are even fringe benefits on top of the ones that God's giving. So, you know, I know that if my people are doing this and my dad and mom are being faithful to God and I'm being faithful to God, they're going to be richly blessed and they're going to live a long life. And when, they, when they're done with that long life, I'm going to get an inheritance. And I'm an oldest child, so like, it, it goes better for me too. Like, I get a double portion. So for me, I can do this. Like, th- this, 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 is, this is easy, but for, for anybody, really, like, there, there are, um, there's in, our generational wealth that's being developed in the course of this that, um, that people would be able to, to honor their mother and father for, even if it's just for the sake of um, inheriting and getting in- incentives at the end. It's something that can be doing. Plus, you're hanging out with your family all the time. So it, it, some, it might be easier, it might be harder, but I think we could do it. So number six, you shall not murder. I left, I left uh, Egypt, don't have a sword, don't have a problem, don't need to murder anybody. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. So this one's a little tough, but in the culture at the time, I can have multiple wives, so I don't need to commit adultery. I can just get another wife if I'm really having a problem. Um, so... Wouldn't do that today. My wife's great. But back then, you know, it, it, it was a possibility. Um, and so there's no need. Like, if, if I can go out and, and, you know, find another woman to marry, why am I going to bother with trying to um, be with some other guy's wife? Like, there's, there's no need for that. Uh, number eight, you shall not steal. Well, in the, you know, in this, in this situation, I've got way more than I had when I was in Egypt. Uh, I've got more than enough. I don't need to be stealing from other people. I can live with that, especially knowing that if I steal whatever I'm going to get, it's, it's, I'm actually going to end up with less. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So if everybody's working together well, um, then I'm not going to have any need to uh, break the trust of the community. I'm not going to have any reason to lie. Again, if I think, oh, well, I want this thing or it's going to benefit me in some way if I go and lie about this, I remember, oh, well, if I do that, all of these benefits are going to go away. So it's not worth it. I'm just not going to do it. And final commandment, you shall not covet. So again, I've got enough. I don't need to be wanting what other people have because, I mean, pretty much at this point in time, we all have the same thing. So, but even, even on top of that, like, I have more than I've ever had before. And so um, 
I, I, I'm content. I've got enough. So I know that this analysis seems glib, and, and that's by design. Uh, but I, I want, it, want us to start really thinking about, like, these things are, are impossible for us to do. Uh, we can take them lightly, but, but in reality, we're, we're not, we're not going to be able to do them. And this is, and this is even, like, for us after, after Jesus came, and he, he made these harder, right? So for, for the original Israelites, we know that they can't do this. And then for us, Jesus comes and says, um, you've committed adultery if you've lusted in your heart. Well, okay, well, that's bad news for me. Um, if you've hated somebody, you are a murderer. Well, that's bad news for me. You know, like, I'm, I'm in those boats. Um, and so it's, it's really, really difficult for us to, to keep the commandments. Even, even, you know, the Ten Commandments are kind of all-encompassing. If, if you're thinking in the terms of the, the Israelites at the time, there's been other laws that have been laid out um, in the Book of the Covenant, and kind of the, the general theme is uh, how, do we, how do we honor God and how do we honor our neighbor? How do we love God and how do we love our neighbor? So even if I'm remembering to keep my bull that is known to gore people you know, away from others or to release my slave after seven years, uh, there are ways that I'm going to fall short, and I'm probably going to do it every day. So the amazing thing is that God provides for the Israelites even when they don't hold up their end of the bargain. The Israelites, as a corporate body, break all of these Ten Commandments. They break them fast, too, you know, like record time. Uh, and especially the first two. I'd say probably the first two are the most important ones. Um, and just in, in like a month from now, six weeks from now, they break them all. They break those two. They go, while Moses is up on the mountain, Moses is gone for 40 days, which kind of is a long time, but there's a big storm on the mountain, like God's there, right? Uh, they go and they make a, they make a golden bull um, and they worship it. And they say, this is, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they're, you know, they're not, um, they're not having any, well, they're having another God before God, and they're making idols. I mean, those are, those are the two big ones. They, they, they can't even hold it together for a month and a half. It, it, you know, but God, in his, in his uh, gracious nature, provides for them um, and ultimately allows them to have long life and inherit the land. He restores them and... Uh, eventually brings them into the land 40 years later. And even once the Israelites arrive in the land, uh, they fall away from worshiping God. So if you, if you look at the book of the Judges, it's probably the low, one of the low points um, in the Old Testament. Pretty much nobody's worshiping God in the land in Judges. And this is after God has brought them into the land and given, given a significant portion of it to the Israelites. Uh, he restores this nation of idolaters um, and people who hate God into, um, who, he turns them back and ultimately leads to the, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of uh, Solomon, where all of these promises of land, are actually, they actually come to pass. God fulfills his, his promise to Abraham um, at the time of David and Solomon. So this is our God. This is the God who wants to provide for his people, even when we are not up to the task. And he does it because even in the process um, of God providing physically for his people, what he's ultimately providing for all of us when he's providing for us spiritually and when he's providing for us physically is that he's providing faithfulness for us. So moving into our third point, um, after first point, God provides spiritually for his people and God provides physically for his people. God provides faithfulness for his people. So in the midst of all of this, um, God's showing his, his, unbound, his boundless faithfulness. Uh, his own faithfulness is what gets the Israelites into the land um, because they can't keep the covenant. 
And, th- and, and this is, this, God knew this from the start. Like, God isn't surprised when he sets these rules up and they, and they fall short. Uh, he knew that this, this, this was going to happen. He knew that the only way that the Israelites and that the people of God were going to be successful is if he was directly interacting with them and directly leading them. This God is not a God who lives in the clouds and just sits things forward and, and watches from afar. Like, God is with us. Um, we see this with the uh, angel, and we see this in our own lives as Christians with the Holy Spirit. So look at, let's look back at the beginning of the passage. I think that this, this is the key verse for us to, to pay attention to. Um, so isn't it, let's look at the angel. Isn't it interesting how God says that the angel, says of the angel that my name is in him? When I was studying this passage, I'm like, what does that mean? That's like the, that's like, there's a lot of weird stuff in this passage I don't understand as a 21st century person. But that one does, doesn't make sense. I don't know if, if they would have known what that meant. What about when it says that, or, or what about God, um, God equivocates that what he says and what the angel says um, are to be obeyed to the same extent? So here's what I think. Here's what, what pretty much every commentator I read thinks. Um, that this, this angel that's manifesting itself as pillar of fire and pillar of smoke um, is God, and is, it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus. So th- this, this entity, this angel, is God with us um, at the time. So Isaiah gives a prophecy in his book that, uh, that uh, there will be one sent from God who is, is the uh, God with us. And, and that's, what, that's what Emmanuel is. And so even in the Old Testament, this is, this is 1,500 years before Jesus is born. Here is, here is the son with his people leading them in the wilderness. And so there are, there are other places in the Old Testament where I would say the pre-incarnate Jesus is revealing himself, and even specifically with fire imagery. So in Exodus 3, which, we, which is at the beginning of this book, when Moses interacts with the burning bush, that's a pre-incarnate Jesus that... Uh, a theophany of God that Moses gets to interact with. We think of in Daniel 3 uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. We get to the point where you know, Nebuchadnezzar's ready to burn him up, and they look in there, and there's four guys. Well, who's this fourth guy? Well, it's, it's, it's an angel of the Lord. It is the pre-incarnate Jesus uh, protecting his people um, from, this, from this consuming fire. So there are a lot of other images, um, of other places where we can see uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus interacting um, with the people in the Old Testament. But suffice it to say that that's what's going on here. Uh, the second person of the Trinity is leading the people of God through the wilderness. And so God is providing enough faithfulness to the covenant, um, ultimately on both sides as he leads them. Um, and ultimately that's so that his purposes will be fulfilled. Uh, they can't keep the uh, covenants that were outlined in this passage um, at the end of the book of the covenant. The Israelites, they can't keep the, um, the commandments that are in the book of the covenant as a whole. And they can't even, they can't even keep the Ten Commandments over here, separate from those. But the, but the problem is that neither can we. None of us in this room can do it without God. So we're in the same boat as the Israelites, as Christians, uh, we try to do what God tells us to do, um, but we fail. And I know that happens to me all the time. We fall short of the mark. This happens every single day, maybe every single hour. You know, God, only God knows really how often we're dropping the ball. And, and frankly, I don't really want to know how often I'm dropping the ball. Like, 
It, it, it's enough for me to know that, that I am doing that. Um, God's standards are perfect standards, um, and only somebody who is perfect and holy can meet those standards. Uh, we, can't, we can't keep these covenants. And so God goes in front of us to lead us in the way that we're supposed to live. So here's the thing I, I, I just love about this passage. And, and as I study the Old Testament more, um, I see this all over the place. Uh, we're seeing Christ in the Old Testament and, and when we see Christ in the Old Testament, it's extremely prophetic for us. So ver- the, the first verse of the passage, right? Verse 20 says, I'm going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So Christ is God's angel, and an angel can simply mean messenger. So Christ is God's messenger who protects us from our own sin and leads us into the promised land of salvation and eternal life. So I'm going to repeat that. That's probably the most important thing I'm going to say today. So Christ is God's angel uh, who protects us from sin and leads us into the promised land. So remember verses 25 and 26 about this provision of life. Um, So this is what Jesus' mission to the world was. So Jesus says in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Or, I came that you would have life and have it to the fullest. So this is a message of hope to the burdened, those who are heavy laden by sin. This is the hope of the gospel, uh, laid bare 1,500 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Um, all that we should do has already been done through Christ. All, when we must, uh, what we must do in order to receive God's blessing of inheritance of land and life are completed through Christ. All of our enemies will fall before us uh, because of his mighty power, um, or they will become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and God then has already dealt with their, with their sin and what they have done to make them enemies of us. There's so much here, guys. <laughs> so in God's eschatological kingdom, the end-time kingdom, um, only he's going to be worshipped. There's going to be no idols. There's going to be no other worship of other things. Um, and he's only going to admit people into that worship for people who love him. And, and even if they do it poorly, like all of us do. Uh, the patterns of God's salvation in the Old Testament, um, it starts with grace, and then it moves to law. So grace is first, and then law, or you say grace, and then the call to obedience from God's people. So God took the Israelites out of Egypt, um, and he saved them from something, but he also saved them to something. He saved them from the, the oppression of the Egyptians, but he saved them to the life of being a light to the nation so that they could be um, a city on a hill, a light that draws people to God. And that's the same, that's the same thing for us too. Uh, we individually, um, and I think us corporately, as well, or we corporately as well, um, are in this boat too. Like we have been saved as Christians. We were sinners. Uh, we still are. We're holy sinners. Uh, but we were called out of our life of sin in order to be a light to our neighborhood, a light to the world, so that people could see the goodness of God and what he is providing for all of us. He will help us even when we fail because that's what he wants to see happen. He's the one who gives us the faithfulness in order to do what we can't do on our own. So here's something tough that we have to think about as Christians, um, but I, I hope that this will help us to be encouraged in the gospel, in our inability to do anything. So 
You think of the Israelites, like I, as I was talking earlier about literally seeing God as, as an Israelite in the pillar of uh, fire and smoke. So how do you think the Israelites should have lived with this, with this pillar in, in their field of view all the time? Uh, so if you're there, maybe you're thinking about sinning, and then you see this massive consuming pillar of fire. You're like, well, maybe I won't do that. Like, I can see where this is going to end up for me. Um, but in the end, that didn't stop them. They sinned anyways. But for us, how much more so is it for us as we, as we think about how to live? Because while the Israelites had God and they could see him and they saw this pillar, we as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So God isn't out there. God is still out there, but he's also in here. And, he, and he's leading us uh, through, his, through his Holy Spirit and he's, he's uh, helping, us, helping us to be able to hear our conscience to move. And so this is really condemning for us as Christians because we, we can't live up to this mark. Uh, and so this gives us the opportunity to really push into who God is and to push into our, uh, what we, what we, how we come short in front of God and to be able to live in grace. It's really our only, good, our only option as Christians, and I think our only option is, as people in general, if you're not a Christian, is to accept God and live in his grace. At the end of the day, living in grace simply means that we've got to put all of our eggs in, in Jesus' basket. We've got, we got to trust what he's done for us. We can't do enough. Um, and when we fail, we cry out to Jesus. We say, we dropped the ball. We're sorry we dropped the ball. Um, and we ask him to, to cover us with, with the work that he's already done. I think so often it seems like there's a conflation about what it means to live in grace um, and the call for us as Christians to live, up God's stand, to live up to God's standards as we do things. So, but there is a difference here. They're, they're, they're distinct. They're separate. Um, and I think that understanding that difference actually helps us to live in the gospel even more. So there's living in grace and there's responding to grace in the way that we live. So like I said, living in grace means running to God when we sin, trusting in Jesus for what he's done. But at the same time, uh, responding in grace means that we recognize who, who we are, our propensity to sin, our propensity to not live up to his standards. Um, and when we miss it, which again, we're doing every single day, uh, we run back to God. And because of that thankfulness we have, that gratefulness for providing for us when we, when we brought nothing to the table. So like God brought the Israelites when they had done nothing for him first. God brought us out of our sin when we had done nothing for him. And there's nothing for us that we can do that God says, yeah, you know what, that's good enough. You know, I'll give you what you want. Like, that's why Christ has to go first. So responding in grace means recognizing, oh, there is so much for me to do um, that God has laid out. And I want to try to, I'm going to try to live up to his standards because of where, because I know I can't do it, but I want, I want to be grateful. I want to, I want to say thank you to God. And so I'm going to, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to do what he says is good. So for us, just like for God is calling the Israelites, it's first, it's first grace. And then we move into obedience. So I think only by meditating um, on who we are um, in the Lord and what the Lord has, has truly done for us, um, are we able to really figure out how we're, how we're supposed to live. Living in grace um, is the freeing experience to mess up, to miss the mark, and to, clearly run in, or to quickly run into God's arms. Uh, he calls Christians to a high destiny, uh, but the reality is that that's, that's already been achieved in the future through the work of Jesus. There's nothing that we're doing that, that is giving us that high destiny. Christ has already done it for us. He calls us much to do much in this earth. He calls us to be the light of the world, 
and that's not an easy task. Um, and we can respond in grace in so many ways. There's not, there's not one way. There, there's thousands and more. Um, but I think the two main categories of response for us to think about um, is how we, how we respond by seeking more of God and how we respond uh, by taking care of our neighbors, by loving our neighbors. So for the first, you know, seeking God, I think that's why, you know, well, I know this is why. This is why Christians are called to study the Bible. This is why Christians are called to attend church, because this is an opportunity for us to experience God, to seek him out, because God, God wants us to know him more. That's one, that's one of the things he wants from us. And so by doing that, we are responding to this God who has given us so graciously uh, life and life abundantly that we can move forward. That's why we go to small group, because we want to see God in the companionship of other believers, other people that are being affected by God. And that's why we go and we share our faith and why we um, do, do good works in the world. It's not because God, God looks down on us and says, you've done enough good works, you get, to, you get to make it to heaven. When you say yes to Jesus, you already get there. But he doesn't just want you to say yes so that you can get to heaven. He wants you to be a world changer. He wants you to be a part of, of bringing more people into God's family. This, this grace that, uh, that we get, that we got freely because somebody told us, we want to tell other people. Why wouldn't you want to share that with other people? And so um, that, that, that's, that's the key thing in our response to grace is that it's open to everybody. We're not better than anybody else. We're all, we're all in the same boat. And so we are inviting other people to experience God's gracious love, that they would experience the, the Jesus that um, we see in John 10.10 10 is the Jesus that gives us life and gives it to us abundantly. And so... As I, as I close here, I just want you all to, to think and remember um, in your own life how God provides for his people physically, spiritually, and how he provides faithfulness for his people um, as they live. Um, and think about how that can change your life as you uh, live your day-to-day um, and interact with God and you interact with your neighbors. Pray with me, please. Father God, we are so thankful for your amazing grace that is beyond us. Um, you respond to us in ways that we, we don't understand. Um, we are not like you. We are not gracious like you. We would never provide for people before they've done anything for us without your spirit working in us first. And so as we look into the journey of the Israelites and how you brought them out of Egypt and how you are moving to save them, I pray that we would recognize that, uh, that your church is the new Israel, the continuation of your people, um, that you are leading us uh, through Jesus Christ and through your Holy Spirit inside of us, um, and you are leading us on a journey into the promised land, into the land of milk and honey, uh, where we will live with you forever. And we pray that we would be able to honor your, your commands along the way, that you would Lead us in being able to do that because on our own and uh, with others, we can't do that. We, we miss the mark every single time. And so as we, as we seek to move back into the world at the end of this service, give us what we need. Give us the faithfulness to engage in the culture, to talk to our neighbors, to love our families, to do what you call us to do. And when we...